All right, so we've been doing this months on end, and we've got a little ways to go. Uh, we've talked about anthropology, which was the study of man. We've talked about homartiology, which was the study of sin. And now we find ourselves in soteriology, which is the study of salvation. And if you remember, we've been looking at words, words on top of words on top of words, and all their usages. And the reason that you do that is because if you can understand the vocabulary and how God is using the words, you can understand the processes and the truths that bring about our salvation. Now, we've talked about several words. Salvation is the longest one by far that we've been on because there's just so much that's going on. And I drew the pyramid for you a couple of weeks ago, but just try to picture that in your mind. I won't draw that again tonight. Um, but we're kind of working through a very loose timeline. And I say loose because, I mean, it's just about impossible to draw out a, a timeline that you can hold to, uh, you know, dogmatically about the process of the Lord bringing us to salvation. But there are some things that took place before time, and there are things that take place in time. And so those are the things that we've been walking through. Election, we know. And I've got passages up here for you. It takes place before time, obviously. Uh, and there were a number of passages that we looked at. First Peter 1 was one of the most significant, uh, where Peter writes to the scattered who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Uh, and when we talked about election, we talked about predestination. Those two give you two different perspectives, but again, it's like splitting hairs. I don't think it would do you any good to figure out some sort of dogmatic separation between those two ideas. We talked about the call. There is the general call, and that comes from my mouth. There's the effectual call that comes from the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit calls, we respond, period. When I call, you hear with your physical ears, but your spiritual ears are still turned off. We are called as men to always call by sharing the gospel. But there are times that we've all experienced where we hear it for the first time and it changes everything for us. And that's the power of God and the spirit of God. And we, we refer to that as the effectual call. You're not going to find that term in scripture, the effectual call. But you can find where he refers to us as the called of God. And that's what he means. Everyone who is called, we will find out in Romans 8 is changed, right? We talked about regeneration, uh, where you are born again. We really appealed to John 3 there a lot. When God calls, He calls you out of the tomb. You go from darkness to light, from death to life, and you are born again. That's another reason we call that the effectual call, right? It is powerful enough to raise a man from the dead. Uh, we also talked about adoption. So many passages that refer to us as being adopted into the family of God. Again, if you think about a timeline, you're like, okay, born again, adopted. Doesn't all that take place at the same moment in time? Yes. But again, we're trying to put this in some kind of reasonable order so we can better understand what's taking place. You're, not, you're never born again and not yet adopted. Okay, but nonetheless, adoption is one of those words that Scripture uses to help us understand we're born again and into the family of God as the children of God. 
And then we come to this word, uh, I guess if you're still walking up that pyramid, you come to justification. Now what has yet to be used? What, what word do you think we'll talk about next week or in the weeks ahead? What, what word have we not even talked about yet? Well, yeah, that one's coming. But that's going to be last. There's still a very important word we haven't even talked about yet. Mm, that one's coming. Your responsibility. What is your responsibility? What word describes our responsibility? Faith or repentance. Faith, right. And see, we're already up to justification. And there's a reason for that. And I've got like all this stuff I want to talk about at once, but I've got to take my time to get in there. There's a reason for that because you've got, and this is why I think he does this. Just to, how do you spell that? Justification. Is that right? I know, but I got to write like this. Yeah, there you go. Just copy, paste. Just copy and paste it. So it's interesting that he would talk about this first rather than this. Because in our mind, we would want to talk about this first before this. But the reason that he's doing this is, and Southern Baptists are super guilty of this, they turn faith into a work that accomplishes this. And see, Zemeck's going to talk about where we're justified first, and then he's going to talk about faith because he does not want to turn faith into a work. We talk about Catholicism. There are a series of works, so to speak, in order that you might be saved or you might be justified. So many communicate, in, in, again, in the Southern Baptist tradition, instead of a bunch of works, we've got one work, and they communicate faith is a necessary work. Now, is faith necessary to be justified? You better say yes. We're not primitive Baptists. They have a heretical gospel message where this is not required for this. We don't have a heretical message. We have a biblical message. Faith is necessary for justification. But again, faith is not a work. And this is how you can make it into a work. I'm justified or by based on my faith. If I have faith in Christ, I am therefore justified. So the basis for being saved is my faith. No, 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 no. The basis for your salvation is Jesus Christ. It's always that. Let me give you, an ex I think, an easy example. It's flooding, right? Chris Hancock built a boat. He's going around to everybody's house, right? Get on the boat. And we'll take you down somewhere else where the floodwaters are not rising because the way that they're talking, the rains aren't going to stop. It's going to completely go over the top of your house, right? And you and your family are going to perish, but there's plenty of room on the boat. You know, Chris, just get on the boat, and Chris is going to take you somewhere else where the floodwaters are not, right? Now, faith is what you look at, Chris, and go, praise God, and you step on that boat. What saved you? That boat? or the decision to get on that boat. If you say, well, the decision to get on that boat, then your salvation is based on your work. If you say, it was the boat that saved me, then you understand the gospel and you understand it's God who justified you. Faith was never a work. I mean, what would we call somebody that didn't get on the boat? Idiot. Thank you, idiot. <laughs> I didn't want to say it. <laughs> Faith is so important. It's the most important nothing that there is. It's nothing. 
But without it, you're not converted. But you can't turn into a work. You're not saved because you chose to get on Chris's boat. You got saved because Chris built a boat. And he asked you to get on the boat. You're saved by the boat. And you, you can't get that messed up. If you do, you don't understand the gospel. That's why we talk about decisional regeneration. You're saved based on your decision. I was not saved based on my decision. I was saved based on the work of Christ. I was saved by the boat, if that makes sense. But that's why he's going to talk about this before he talks about this, because he doesn't want you to get this confused, that this is your work, this is what you're responsible to do in order to be saved. I mean, that's silly. I mean, if we all got down to wherever Chris was taking us on the boat, we wouldn't be patting each other on the back for the good decision that we made to get on the boat. We'd all be patting Chris on the back saying, praise God you built a boat big enough for everybody, man. That's what we'd be talking about. We'd be talking about the boat. We wouldn't be talking about that decision that I made when I was nine when I chose to walk out of my, or swim out to the end of my driveway and get on Chris's boat. Does that make sense to y'all? Okay, so this is why he's going to talk about justification, and then he's going to talk about faith, and that should kind of, if you give it much thought, you should say, well, why would we talk about it in that order? And that's the reason that we talk about it in that order. That's why it's so important. Now, this word right here, I told you I had a bunch to talk about before I even get into the slide. You know, I'm not going to, like, sprain my back trying to pronounce that. That's a Hebrew word. And it's translated as justified or it's translated as righteousness but you got to understand when you bring a word into the context of God all of a sudden you you've greatly magnified that word for instance if I write this my pen's going out let me get another real quick if I write the word good, okay, and we just went out to eat lunch, okay, we all know the context. Uh, we went to, I don't know, Jefferson's and got a hamburger, uh, and we all say, yeah, that was, that was really good, okay? We understand the level, we understand the usage, we understand the application of good. If we're in a shoe store, trying on a bunch of shoes, they're trying to find something that's happy, and we, they put a pair on. We walk around them, and we walk back and go, yep, that's good. And you take them up there and buy them. You understand the context of that, right? But when we say God alone is good, like the Lord Jesus did, okay, because we brought it into the context of good, is anything else good? No. Are you good? No. Is anything good? No. Who alone is good? God, right? That's how when you bring something into the context of God, you've, you've blown that word up so big that it can only apply to God. Does that make sense? In other words, when we talk about this particular word and we talk about righteous, uh, Rob, who is righteous in Luke 1? Who is the couple? Oh, um, Zacharias and Elizabeth. The Bible says they were both righteous. 
And when you read that, you got a problem with that. Because you're like, wait a minute. God alone is righteous. But again, I'll take you back to this word. What context are we using? Right? If you describe Chris Hancock, you say, well, he's a good guy. And you would be right about that. But if we're going to open up the Bible and talk about good, well, i got to take him out of that conversation because he's not good. If you're going to talk about righteous in the context of God or just, well, the rest of y'all are automatically excluded because all of a sudden that word has been elevated up into the context of God. And he alone is righteous. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's talk about this word and we'll walk into the New Testament and see how that word's used in so many different usages. But anyway, here you go. Justification, our next word, is being just or regarded as just. The idea of conformity to a norm, forensic or ethical. I'll talk about that in just a second. And then this is a quote from Zimic. For the people of God, the norm was obviously His covenant, which was based upon His character. In other words, justification or righteousness, it's the same word, can only apply to God. But because people have been brought into relationship with God, what are they required to be? Righteous. And we know the end of this story. Can we be righteous? No. Can we do good by keeping the law? No. And so we're automatically going to create this problem that's only solved by the gospel because God requires us to be righteous. We're not righteous, but He alone is righteous. Make sense? Am I being confusing, Jeremy? All right. So let me explain. I told you I had a lot of explaining to do. Let me explain this. And we've talked about this before. And then we'll go on and look at passages. So here's the word justify. And here is the two ways you've got to think about it. And I know these are not words that you use. And so I've got to remind you what they mean. Miss, me and Miss Burma have a friend that is deeply concerned about this today. And that's when you're standing before a judge. And he's going to make the call whether you are guilty or innocent. In most of the usages of justification or justified, it's in a forensic sense, meaning you're in, a, you're in a courtroom and you're going to be declared guilty or innocent. That's it. It's forensic usages. Okay? And this usage is when you actually are just from your character, from your own person. Now, these two are totally different things, and if you mess them up, you're not going to understand the word justified. This and this is not the same thing. In other words, in the gospel, we are declared innocent, not guilty, based on who? Jesus Christ. Are you ever declared not guilty or innocent based on your own works? Never. Therefore, we need a forensic justification. We need to be declared innocent. And the only way you can do that is through what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. But let me ask you this. If God has justified you through the blood of Jesus Christ, are you going to have any sort of ethical or character 
that is righteous. Yeah. This right here is a problem. It's not the same thing, but I can draw that in the middle. In other words, if Jesus has justified you, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're justified, but he also has filled you with your spirit, meaning there's going to be a new character about you that's going to act just, and you're going to do what's right. So these are all these things that we've got to consider when we talk about that one word. It's a huge word, right? Not the same, but there's no way to separate them. Now here's where Catholics get really south, and this is the difference between our gospel and their gospel. They would draw a big circle around both of these and go, oh, it's the same thing. No, you're not saved by your works. You're not saved by being good. You're saved because of Jesus' goodness, and if you've been saved by Jesus' goodness, you're going to have Jesus' character in you. Not the same, but I can still draw that right there because if there's one, there's the other. Does that make sense? Again, I've got to talk about it because it's all in that one word. Most of the time when you see this word in Hebrew, it's talking about this. You got declared not guilty even though you are guilty. But occasionally when you see this word, it'll refer to our own righteousness or our own goodness. All right, so let me go through them and see, now that I've talked about everything, see if it will make a little more sense. Isaiah 53, here's your word. I want you to notice this. See this right here? It's also right there. And it's also right there. There, same word. But look how it's translated differently both times. As a result of the anguish of his soul, God will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, Jesus Christ, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their sins or their iniquities. So in other words, this is who he is. And using the same word through what he will do, he will make us righteous. Make sense? See that? You'd think with such a big word, they'd have more than one word. But it does help us in understanding it means the same thing. In other words, if you put your faith in Christ, you are righteous in the sight of God, as if you'd never sinned. That is mind-boggling to me. It's gone. It's as if you'd never, ever sinned or rebelled against God if you've trusted in the person of Christ. I mean, the gospel is ridiculous. It's absolutely amazing. But it's all based off that one word. All right, here's some other usages uh, Genesis 15:6. Then he, Abraham, believed, there's your word for faith, in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's that word right there. Habakkuk, behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Same word. Um, here's some quotes that I jotted down for you. They're pretty tough, but... We'll see if they're helpful. 
This word root is frequently used in the Old Testament, this right here, to denote the quality of righteousness or justice and is preeminently established by God. As applied to God, it refers to His attribute of righteousness or justice. But there are cases where it's also predicated of men and describes their character and their conduct or both as upright, just, or righteous. In other words, most of the time it's this, but sometimes it's this. Okay? Uh, Murray goes on to make this important connection between divine acquittal and ethical righteousness. In connection with this justifying act of God, we must reckon with the possibility that the justifying act, though strictly forensic in character, might still have respect to a righteousness of character and behavior of the persons justified. In other words, what he said there is what I did right here when I drew the equal sign. And we talked about this in John 3. It's impossible to be born again and not show the character and qualities of your heavenly Father who gave birth to you through the gospel. It's impossible. Okay? And that's supposed to be convicting if that convicts you. Right? But it's in a growing sense. All y'all, you know what it's like to have babies around here. And they don't act like adults. Not at all. But we don't get discouraged about that. Well, that might be an overstatement. Sometimes we get discouraged about that. But we know they're going to grow up and they're going to act right. And they're going to do right. That's the goal. When we think, oh yeah, we hope. But you got to understand, for the converted believer, don't make the mistake of, okay, if this, then I'm going to act like an adult. No, but you are maturing and growing in an ethical righteousness that God's placed inside of you. You're never going to stop growing in righteousness. Sometimes you're going to act like you're two, but then you'll repent and you'll act like you're 52 in the faith, right? So don't, don't, don't jump way out there and go, well, I can't be converted because I did this and this and this. Don't do that to yourself. We, we look for glimmers of light and glimmers of hope. You're not going to run out of the gate and share Jesus with 12 people the day you were converted and go home and never go back to sin for the rest of your life. It's just, I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. But you do grow because you've been born again, because you've been justified. Forensic, ethical. Uh, all right, so when we move into the New Testament, now watch this. This is crazy. Uh, I didn't write it down because I knew it would be easy to find. Now let's see if I can easily find it. So the Septuagint, takes, y'all know what the Septuagint is, right? It is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And there are 400, let me write this down. The Septuagint translated this word 476 times. 462 times it used this word right here. 
DK, which is the root, that is most often used in the book of Romans. And we talked about this when we started Romans. It's translated just, justified, righteous, righteousness. It's all built off the same root. And it all has the same meaning. And we see it all over the place. It almost always describes the righteousness of God. Sometimes it talks about our ethical righteousness. But you see how many different times words are built off that one root. Here's an example. Romans 1.17 For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it stands written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Same root, Romans 3.23 Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, this was translated into this and it became this and this for us. But it didn't change. It's still the righteousness of God and it's not yours. And you're still justified or made righteous by His work, not yours. And so if I drew justification and faith back up on the board, you can understand why we're talking about justification before faith. Because you don't save yourself. You're justified by His work, not yours. Okay? All right. Consequently, we may say that the verb is primarily and predominantly a forensic term. New Testament, Old Testament, doesn't matter. A word of the law court describing a relation to or a status before God, the judge of all men. Uh, and I think we might be free to do something else. All right, so turn with your Bibles. I think a translation is going to get me on this one. I hope not, but we'll see. All right. Exodus 23.7. This was a part of the law. I'll read the first part, but I don't need the first part of the passage. It says, Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. The last part of that passage is what you need to be most concerned about. God despised the idea of punishing the innocent and setting the guilty free. That was a part of the law. God despised the idea that you would punish an innocent man or you would set a guilty man free. God said, I hate that. Now, do you see a problem with that? When we get into Romans 3, turn to Romans 3.21 now. We'll just start in verse 10. I mean, y'all are super familiar with this, I realize. Uh, there's none righteous, Romans 3.10. Not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. 
There's none who does good. There's not even one. Throats an open grave. Their tongues they keep deceiving. Poison of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The path of peace they've not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, God hates setting the guilty free. But the problem is you and I are guilty. So how in the world does God get around this problem that's born in His own heart? Through substitutionary atonement. That is the only way. It's through the gospel. And that's why justification is so important. You are guilty. And the only way that God can acquit you or set you free is to pour your punishment or the punishment that you deserve out on the Lord Jesus Christ and then forensically, in a court of law, He declares you not guilty. Therefore, punishment's not even an option for you because you're innocent. Remember, God says, I, I hate the punishment of the innocent and I hate setting the guilty free. And you're like, well, God, you've got the biggest problem ever to fix because I'm guilty. And he's like, well, I poured out that punishment because I punished the guilty on my son and I've declared you just or righteous in my sight. I've let you go free. I can't punish you. You're innocent. That's how good the gospel is. And that's why substitutionary atonement is an absolute must because God has to go against His own nature if Jesus didn't die on the cross for our place. Right? But everything was satisfied and you and I are justified and we're declared innocent. Now what role did you play in any of that? You became guilty. And you literally stand before God and He just declares you innocent. You weren't a good person. You didn't do enough good to outweigh the bad. He didn't like your smile. There was nothing on the table for you at all. He simply declared you innocent because he punished his son. Because he will punish the guilty. So God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Therefore, you're declared innocent. You're declared justified. Right? That's how good the gospel is. So now look at Romans 4, 2 through 8. For if Abraham was justified by works, he's got something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham trusted God or believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but trusts in Him or believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, that man's faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, blessed are those whose sins have been covered, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That's the gospel. Right? Now, how do we experience that? Well, we'll talk about that next week with faith. But you see, that's, that's the most important nothing that there is because faith simply stepped on the boat. 
Faith simply heard the gospel and trusted in what Jesus has done on our behalf so that when we stand before God, He goes, oh, you're innocent. You've never sinned. You know? And that's really hard to get up here, but that's, that's the goodness of the gospel, and that's what faith does. It hears it, and it believes it. And when you show up before God, you're not, you're, you don't have this, boy, I just, you know, I hope I've done enough. What are you talking about? I can answer that for you now. You have not done enough. You know? Faith solely trusts in the finished work of Christ to justify you before God. And so when I give a general call on Sunday and tell you to turn from your sins, repent, and put your faith in Christ, that's all the only thing I'm asking you to do is to get on the boat. To turn your back on everything else and trust the work of Christ solely to be justified before God. To be declared innocent.